0: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I think we will make a start. Does that fit? i okay. I'm Peggy Frith, and I'm currently president of Oxford Medical Alumni, which is a very active university association with a worldwide membership of both clinicians and scientists. We're hosting this as the ninth in our series of annual Osler Lectures discussions. Today is a discussion. There will be a reception for members of Oxford Medical Alumni immediately after this meeting in the Founders' Room here at the Said Business School. I would like to mention in passing that Oxford is currently ranked number one in the world for the scale and excellence of our biomedical scientific research and also for the quality of our clinical training. On the 22nd of November, a public exhibition will open, which focuses on the great achievements of medicine at Oxford since the 13th century goes from Roger Bacon's scientific inquiries through including the development of penicillin to the present day. I would now like to say a few words of introduction both to our topic and to our three speakers this afternoon. Our subject of course is big data and drug discovery. The medical field of big data is emerging with great potential to revolutionize healthcare research. It could offer patients better, safer and more personalized treatments very large sets of medical data are now routinely collected for example through electronic patient records human dna sequencing and monitoring treatment regimes this session will look at how oxford is addressing these opportunities and challenges to build on our world-leading expertise in running some of the largest clinical trials of treatment and our involvement in very large-scale epidemiological studies worldwide. For example, the causes prevention and treatment of heart attack, stroke and cancer. To bring big data sets together for researchers to use in a suitably anonymised way will provide powerful new insights into who becomes ill and why. But to store and analyse vast quantities of data is not straightforward. So now to our speakers. Professor Peter Donnelly, who will speak first to introduce the topic, is Professor of Statistical Science at the University of Oxford, and he is also Director of the Wellcome Trust Centre for Human Genetics. He graduated from the University of Queensland and came to Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar for his doctorate. His current research focuses on understanding the genetic basis of common diseases, looking at human demographic history, bacterial evolution, and the mechanisms involved in mammalian recombination. Peter is a fellow of the Royal Society and of the Academy of Medical Sciences. Dr. Martin Landry will speak next. He's reader in epidemiology within the Nuffield Department of Population Health and is honorary consultant physician at Oxford University Hospitals. His principal research interest is in the reliable evaluation of treatments. In particular, as co-principal investigator for a series of large scale randomized trials involving over 65,000 patients. He also coordinates development of IT systems to facilitate large scale clinical studies, including the UK Biobank of half a million middle aged volunteers. And finally, Dr. Saad Jbabdi is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Center for Functional Brain MRI in the Department of Clinical Neurosciences based at the JR Hospital. His main research interest is understanding structural and functional organisation of the brain. Working with Professor Steve Smith, he is a member of the team for the NIH-funded Human Connectome Project and the UK Biobank Imaging Study. We're very grateful to our three speakers. I would now like to hand over to Peter Donnelly.
1: Thanks very much. Uh, I've got two different roles today. The first is to say a few words by way of introduction to give you a sense of some of the exciting developments in Oxford around the idea of big data in biomedicine. And then I'll speak a little bit later about my own part of that, which is uh, applications of genetics to biomedicine and some of the challenges on the big data side in genetics. So as you just heard uh, in the introduction, my own background, and as it were, my day job at the university is a professor of statistics, not always the most exciting, or or perceived to be the most exciting of areas. There are various aphorisms about statisticians. One of them is that statisticians are people who like working with numbers, but don't have the personality skills to become accountants. (laughs) And another is the uh, almost rhetorical question, how do you tell the extroverted statistician from the introverted one? To which the answer is that the extroverted statistician is the one who looks at the other person's shoes. So uh, coming from that kind of background, for my own part, it's incredibly exciting to be uh, involved in an area where biomedical research and the skills of analyzing and thinking about very, very large data sets are coming together. And it's an area in uh, in many parts of uh, biomedical research that we're aware of, but one in Oxford in which uh, we've got a very exciting program that we're developing. And I want to say just a couple of words at the outset around that. So as you've heard... uh, Now, and may have heard uh, there was some media coverage during the week, but the idea behind big data is that these days in many areas of medicine, we generate large amounts of information. Uh, My own field is genetics, so large amounts of information about genetic variation between people. Uh, There's treasure troves of information in our hospital records and patient records, uh, imaging, which we'll hear about a little bit later, and then large-scale population studies and and, uh, disease surveillance on a worldwide scale. So we're just on the cusp, I think, of a really exciting period uh, in the science where we try and bring all of those resources together and develop new ways of interrogating them and new ways of learning things, not just from genetics or not just from medical records or imaging, but but by seeing the connections between the two. It's something in Oxford that that, um, we feel well-placed to do. We have many of the leaders in the development of analytical methods in these areas, You'll hear from some of those today, and also uh, leaders in terms of some of the very large studies uh, in this kind of area. That's crystallized in Oxford in a new development, the Li Ka-Shing Center for Health Information and Discovery, which is uh, held, hosted on one of the university's biomedical research campuses at the Churchill Hospital in Headington. And there are two parts to that. There's one part called the Target Discovery Institute and another called the Big Data Institute. The Target Discovery Institute already exists. Both of these are unique in their vision and what they hope to achieve. I'll say a little bit about each of them in a minute. And both are, by their nature, extremely multidisciplinary, bringing together scientists from different fields to try and push the field forward. And to give you a sense of scale, when both are up and running, they'll house about 600 research scientists. So first of all, the Target Discovery Institute, the TDI, That's a new, uh, it's an attempt to break a paradigm. In the past, we've had uh, academic scientists who do core biomedical research, and then drug companies who try and pick up some of those discoveries to find new targets and new therapies. And both sides have been aware for a long time that one of the biggest challenges is the bridge, or rather the lack of bridge in the middle. And the vision behind the Target Discovery Institute, led by my colleague, uh, the Nuffield Professor of Medicine in Oxford, Peter Radcliffe, is to move the academic work forward to get academics directly involved in understanding and characterizing better drug targets. So that involves collaborations between uh, basic science in biology and in chemistry, pharmacology, and medicine. And the idea is to use modern and large-scale screening techniques, genomic techniques, proteomics, uh, cell imaging, and so forth, to identify drug targets at an earlier stage than industry would normally do, and hopefully in ways that are more successful. You'll probably be aware that there's a major crisis in the pharmaceutical industry exactly because of the the challenges of coming up with large targets. That building's uh, already up and running, and there are a large number of major collaborations, industrial collaborations there. More aspirational, but very much in the planning stage, is Oxford's Big Data Institute. We're very fortunate to have received... uh, substantial government funding towards, but not completely for, the building involved, and an extremely generous benefaction from the Li Ka-Shing Foundation uh, to bring in and house new scientists in the area. So just to give you a sense, uh, here's an architect's drawing of the two parts of the building. As I said, on the Medical Research Campus uh, in Headington, this is the Target Discovery Institute. It not only exists as an architect's uh, drawing, but in in, uh, real life, and I'll show you some pictures in a minute, and here's the proposed Big Data Institute, That is the Target Discovery Institute. And it was opened as part of the Lee Ka-Shing Center, as I described, uh, a couple of months ago in a ceremony involving the Prime Minister and the Chancellor and and the benefactor, Mr. Lee. So I'll stop there and then uh, allow my colleagues to tell you a little bit about some of the areas involved, but just wanted to give you a sense of the excitement and the possibilities that we see in Oxford in taking the area forward. Thanks.
2: Very much, Peter. It's not often you start a talk by taking down a photograph of the Prime Minister. Um, so, uh, big data—it's um, a term that I think um, either means nothing or means everything, um, and to each person means something slightly different. What's big? Um, well, I thought we'd start with some numbers that are big, that are real, and that are a problem. So, these are uh, the numbers of deaths that are likely to occur by age. of the 130 million or so people that are born this year. So there's some projections in this, clearly, Um, but they're based uh, on uh, the um, uh, global burden of disease. So if one looks at neonates and young children, about 10 million children worldwide will be dying from uh, neonatal disorders, from infection, from malaria, largely from disorders that are preventable by clean water, vaccination uh, and, uh, and good maternal health. There's about another 10 million who will die between the ages of 5 and 34 by something that's largely external. That may be accident, trauma, gunfight, war, civil war, suicide. Important problems, but if you like, largely non-medical. And then there's a third group of people, of about 40 million of those people, will die between the ages of 35 and 64. It's a sort of arbitrary definition of being middle-aged. One of my more senior colleagues keeps shifting the upper upper boundary, and we're now at 69, and I think we're about to shift to 74. So, (laughs) but the argument would go that those deaths in middle age are largely avoidable. Death in old age is unavoidable, we will all die. Death before old age is avoidable. Now, if one looks at those 40 million deaths, about half of those are going to be due to vascular disease worldwide, and perhaps another third due to cancer, and then there's a series of other uh, uh, disorders beyond that. So I'm just going to focus on vascular disease over over the course of my talk, but I'm going to start with the man who gave that description of death in old age is inevitable, death before old age is not This is his data, big data maybe, from uh, the British Doctors' Study, a survey of about 30-something thousand British doctors in the 1950s uh, asking whether they smoked or did not smoke. And what you can see on the uh, 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 far right-hand curve is the uh, survival amongst those people who did not smoke. And on the left-hand curve, the survival among those people who continued to smoke all the time until they could smoke no longer because they died on average, 50%, uh, lost 10 years of life through continuing to smoking. These data were generated by being able to survey large numbers of people in a very manual fashion in the 1950s, and then follow them up long-term through hospital records, or in particular, in this case, through death registries, through the National Registry. Wind forwards uh, till uh, uh, late last year. Those data were all in men. Here's a different study run by uh, uh, one of his uh, students. She's no longer a student, Val- uh, Dr. Um, Dame uh, Valerie Beryl, of a study of 1.3 million women. They were recruited in about 1998. They were followed for about 15 years. And here you can see that the more they smoke, the greater their risk of dying. This is obvious to us now. The question is, is there any point giving up smoking? So, on average, amongst the smokers, the risk is about three. I wish I had a pointer. I probably do have a pointer. Is about three amongst these people who continue to smoke forever, and the, risk, the relative risk is one for those people who never smoked. If, people, if these women were to give up in their 20s uh, or early 30s, then their risk would not climb to the three as if they continued, but would uh, be fairly similar to the non-smokers. That's not to say smoke for all you like until you're 30 and then give up. Because, of course, with something so addictive, it's incredibly challenging to give up. But it is an important public health lesson that if we want to avoid uh, deaths in the first half of this century, it's going to be persuading current smokers to give up, we want to avoid deaths in the second half of this century, Is going to be persuading current and largely unborn non-smokers not to start. So it has important public health implications. So let's turn to blood pressure. So this is the risk of uh, ischemic heart disease, sorry, and cholesterol, sorry, my mistake, and cholesterol. Everybody knows this, that the higher your cholesterol, the higher the risk. It took uh, this study of a a million records and about 100,000 deaths and about 50,000 of those being due to heart disease in order to identify that these same straight-line relationships occurred whether people were middle-aged or elderly. They still were there. So that's one way of using big data to tell you something that we now think we know, but, of course, at one point we didn't. The question comes, could we actually change that? Well, of course, one of the experiments we can do is to do a randomized trial. We can take a group of people, in this case about 20,000 people, that's quite a lot of people to find, and ask them to, uh, uh, and randomize them either to take a cholesterol-lowering drug, a statin, or to take the placebo. And of course, as we now know, statins work. It's, it's uh, um, uh, uh, sort of, again, this is Daily Mail type stuff. When it gets to the Daily Mail, it's either true or, f- or, or, or wildly untrue, but it's rarely in the middle. So you can see here that actually, after five years, the risk uh, of major vascular events has been reduced by taking a statin. This is now telling us not only is cholesterol related risk, but the cholesterol is in some way causal. We can reverse that risk. So this is 20,000 patients recruited actually through going through hospital records, randomised for five years, seen every six months, uh, and uh, uh, and followed up. But because of the uh, health system in the UK, particularly in this instance, because of linkage to uh, hospital episode uh, records, linkage to mortality, we actually were able to get an additional six years of follow-up and show that actually the benefits continued way out beyond the initial five years of taking the treatment. And I haven't shown it to you. You can also look at the safety. You can determine that not only is five years of taking a statin not cause cancer uh, um, or other forms of non-vascular mortality, but in fact, actually, even after 11 years, there's no impact on cancer. One final piece, advantage of this is cost. This initial study cost £21 million. I would tell you that that's actually about 10% of what a, what a commercial company would... Uh, um, Uh, spend these days on these sorts of studies. This additional piece of follow-up, this additional uh, six years of follow-up, cost £200,000. So we can do it cheaply, we can do it efficiently, we can do it reliably, we can get answers that really matter to real patients and to real public health. So these are the sorts of experiments that we've been doing for some time. Now we, we want to move up a gear and actually answer more questions in more people in greater detail. And I'm going to describe during much of the rest of my talk Two uh, prospective studies, this is ongoing studies, Uh, one based in China, the China Kodori Biobank, and one based in the UK, the UK Biobank, both of which are being coordinated in Oxford. They both include half a million people. They both recruited during uh, the first uh, decade of this century. They both recruited largely middle-aged people and both uh, had uh, rather more women than they did men. Of course, the massive difference is that the, the people in China were all Chinese, and the people in the UK, well, in fact, 95% of them were white British. There is, in this study, general consent for use of, of the blood, including the genetic material, and general consent for follow-up through all the routine hospital records. So it's an um, incredibly valuable resource. I just want to emphasize the, scale, the importance of these big numbers. And we can obviously get large numbers. Half a million is a large number of people. That gives us a large number of cases, large numbers of controls. It also increases the breadth that we can study. We can study different risk factors, different exposures, different lifestyle habits, and different outcomes. We can not only study heart disease and cancer, we can study dementia, we can study osteoarthritis, we can uh, study uh, uh, whatever disease one one is is concerned about in middle and late age. We get the the, uh, uh, duration of follow-up, And indeed, frequency of follow-up. So if things relapse and remit, we can study that. If things don't emerge for 50 years afterwards, we can follow that. And then we get the depth, the level of detail. And the imaging that you'll hear about a little later is one example of the level of detail. So let me give you an illustration of the value of numbers, just having a lot of people. I think everybody here would know that high blood pressure is bad for you. High blood pressure causes an increased risk of heart disease. Now, this is a study of 5,000 people. And I showed you some very clear pictures earlier on that that relationship between cholesterol and risk was true in middle age. it It was true in the very elderly. Wouldn't you like to know that for blood pressure? Is it just a risk factor in the middle aged, when you're 40, or is it when you're 50? And what happens when you're 70 and what happens when you're 80? Well, if we do 5,000 people, these associations are what we get. I've drawn some lines on, but frankly, I could have drawn any lines that I cared to, and it really would give you little in the way of information. That's 5,000 people. If I go to 50,000 people, now it's beginning to become a bit clearer. I have more people having heart disease. I have less uncertainty about everything I'm trying trying to assess. And if I go up to 500,000 people, and these these data are real, now I can see the straight-line relationships, whether people are in their 40s or people are in their 80s. Blood pressure is important for me, and it's important for my mother. So numbers matter. So we have to work out a way of getting large numbers. Another thing that matters is detail. So I'm going to tell you, and I, I suspect that not everybody here is medical, so I'm sorry, I'm... Well, I am sorry about that, but I'm also sorry about the fact that you won't necessarily under- understand all of these terms. What I'm going to tell you is, is that these are all uh, risk factors for getting a stroke. So in crude terms, people who have any of these are more likely to have a stroke. The second thing I'm going to tell you is that if you're this side of the line, you're more, cl- more likely to have a, a lacuna stroke, one type of stroke. If you're this side of the line, you're more likely to have another, another type of stroke. So all of these things, they, they equate equally. Alcohol is as bad for this type of stroke as it is for this type of stroke. But there are some diseases. This is narrowing of the arteries in the, in the, um, the carotid artery, Uh, this is largely atrial fibrillation, having an irregular pulse um, and getting blood clots from the heart and little fragments of blood clot going up towards the brain, are much more dangerous for this type of stroke than for this type of stroke. Now, if I'm trying to study what causes stroke and I'm trying to study are there either genetic causes or are there drugs that might reduce the risk of stroke, I'm simply not going to pick that up in the same level of detail if I lump all the strokes together and just say this is stroke this level of detail and the, uh, uh, the, uh, cardiac imaging, sorry, the brain imaging is going to give us even better is actually important for trying to pick out those individual signals. So let's move to China, uh, metaphorically, I think. Um, so this is a study of 500,000 people uh, set up, as I say, in China um, about uh, five, to five to ten years ago. Uh, China um, is a very diverse country from the frozen north to the tropical south, from the big urban cities, uh, some of these places you've never heard of, but they have 10 million people in them, uh, to, the, to the very uh, uh, rural areas and pr- with primitive uh, levels of, uh, of health care and indeed of, uh, of, uh, of other aspects of society. So it's a very varied country, which makes it an excellent place to, st- to study uh, determinants of disease. It all makes it quite challenging. If one looks, uh, they did a st- the, As I say, they recruited half a million uh, Chinese. Each of these are different, uh, uh, different parts of uh, China across that map. In, on the black on, on the side here, this is urban. This is rural. If we, one just looks in cross section at baseline, at different types of dispatch, you can see how diverse China is. So, if you look, for example, eating dairy products, the urban pe- uh, areas much more likely than the rural areas. If one looks at diabetes, much more likely in the cities than in the countryside. If one looks at overweight and obese, much more likely in the cities than the countryside. If one looks at things that perhaps one wouldn't necessarily uh, think of, at least not if you're uh, uh, sitting in the West, uh, green tea drinking, you know, very variable between one area of China and another. If one looks at eating spicy food, almost none to almost ubiquitous. So huge patterns, differences in the pattern of what people do, what they look like, even how tall they grow. So it gives you a really good uh, place to study uh, the impact of these sorts of factors on disease. Well, that's all very well, but we want to know what happens to these people. One of the challenges for many years in China has been actually trying to get hold of information that's co- uh, coordinated, organized, that gives us follow-up Uh, proper follow-up for what happens. So the traditional way would be to go back to those people and ask them, how are you? That's quite challenging uh, in half a million people. One can look at the death registries, Uh, one can look at disease registries, and most recently, and really pretty much unique to this study, uh, it's possible, in fact, to look at the health insurance records and get individual detail for every reason why people were in hospital or every treatment that people had whilst they were in hospital, including the presence or absence of various diagnostic tests like brain scans. So this is beginning to become a a perfect resource for studying these things. If one looks at the outcomes, this is heart disease. Already we have 10,000 cases of heart disease, nearly 20,000 of stroke, uh, another 10,000 of cancer. Very powerful. If one looks at the relationships, this is uh, systolic blood pressure. So this is um, high blood pressure and low blood pressure. This is the risk of ischemic stroke. And this is the risk of stroke with bleeding. Again, very strong associations. The information in China is relevant to Britain. I'm going to switch in my last little bit back to Britain and actually talk about UK Biobank, being coordinated by, by Oxford, particularly uh, the health informatics part of this, um, but in fact, as you can see, uh, 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 involving many different funders and many different academics uh, across the country. We recruited uh, half a million people in 22 assessment centres, had about six at a time. Um, we moved them around shopping centres in big, uh, relatively urban areas. Uh, recruitment uh, went fabulously well. This is three and a half years to recruit half a million people. How do we do that? We use the records to find the people. These little uh, plateaus were that we, the uh, clinic staff, and I suspect the volunteers, insisted on having Christmas off. <laughs> When we, This was an industrial approach, uh, uh, so it's a combination of tailoring things so that they really suit the individual volunteers. They are um, enjoyable to take part in, but at the same time, thinking of it as an industrial process in the sense that we are trying to get large numbers of people through, collecting large amounts of data as we do so. So we had these large uh, clinics, perhaps 20 um, workstations at a time. People would move from station to station. Uh, uh, exercising on a bicycle and having their ECG taken, blowing into machines, having the, the uh, respiratory information taken, or having their eyes scanned. Overall, we were able to get a 1,000 data points in two hours on 100 participants per day per clinic, and about six clinics at a time. Colossal amounts of information. The, the samples were taken up to Manchester, where... Um, uh, they were the central lab is, they were processed, uh, and the samples are stored in this giant uh, frozen warehouse um, with a little robot that runs up and down the middle because it's too cold for the rest of us to go in. One of the problems is not putting the samples away, but how on earth is one going to find them afterwards? Well, there's a warehouse here which is probably twice the size of this room, entirely at minus 80. We already have... Um, Uh, Around 5,000 of those uh, volunteers have now died. We've learnt of that information through the national registries from uh, England, Wales and Scotland. They're separate. We already have uh, in, in, included in the database about 100,000 hospitalizations just for, the, just for the year 2010. We're going through year by year. Again, this is uh, central hospital data. Uh, we have about 1.3 million hospitalizations of one sort or another among these 500,000 people, dating back all the way to 1996. And as we look forwards, you can see that over the next um, uh, 10 years or so, we're going to get really very large numbers of cases who have these various conditions, important conditions, where combined with the genetic analyses, with the imaging, and with other analyses, we can really learn something um, informative. Well, that in some ways could be done. It's the scale, the 500,000 is important, the range is important, but what about the detail? Well, we can get better detail. We already have um, uh, web-based diet questionnaires from about a third of a million people. We have um, repeated the assessments on uh, on about 20,000 people. Um, About 100,000 people will wear um, uh, things that look like wristwatches but are actually accelerometers. What I actually mean by that is they look like one of those fitness devices that you can carry around with you that tell you whether you're walking enough All the data come back centrally. We're running a standard panel of laboratory tests, about 40 different analytes, uh, and uh, uh, doing the uh, genetic analyses, and and perhaps Peter will talk about those in a minute, on all half a million. We're planning towards uh, um, doing imaging, detailed imaging of brain, heart, body fat, uh, bone density, and one or two other things in about 100,000 people, with a pilot due to start early in the new year. And then we're able to link to all sorts of additional data sets. For example, geographic data sets. How far does somebody live from a power station? How far... uh, What's the background levels of radon? All those sorts of things can be linked in to try and understand the relationship between environment and health. So that's where where these big studies have got to. We've gone from Richard Dole and his British doctors um, all the way through to this enormous potential. It's a resource that's open for all. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> although coordinated in Oxford, uh, there are access procedures on the, available uh, for researchers on the web, um, and we're very uh, keen for people to use it. So from my perspective, the large-scale studies really do give the reliable information an individual doctor needs, an individual patient needs, and as a, as a population we need. There are enormous challenges for collecting these sort of volumes of data, storing it, analysing it, and actually making sense of it. And that's the piece that's going to require a new infrastructure. It's not just buildings. It's not just clever computers. It's the clever people. It's the collaboration across multiple disciplines and organisations. It's making sure that the policies are in place for protecting privacy, but making sure there's transparency, making sure there's proper use of the resource, for making sure that people have really understood uh, just uh, the value uh, of this this type of research to to, to health uh, more generally. So I'll stop there. Thank you.
1: So I want to talk to you a little bit now to give you a sense of some of the recent developments in genetics and some of the work that we've got planned um, going forward in uh, and around big data in the area. So just uh, to remind everyone of of some of the terminology, when we speak of an organism's genome, we mean the entirety of its DNA, the material that carries the uh, information that it inherits from its parents. In the case of humans, uh, our genome consists of 3 billion Uh, base pairs, so you can think of those as kind of chemical letters in our instruction manual, uh, organized into 23 pairs of chromosomes, and we get one copy of that genome from our father and another copy of that genome from our mother at conception. The Human Genome Project uh, was the combined scientific attempt to read one version of the human genome, that took uh, thousands of scientists working in six or seven countries and three billion pounds uh, three billion dollars over about 10 or 12 years. But it was uh, announced with great fanfare in the early part of this uh, decade, or last decade, this century. Um, and I want to give some sense of where things have gone since then. So just, uh, I mean, we naturally foc- focus on humans and I said human genomes uh, are big. They've got three billion pieces of information. Uh, We might think that we're rather more complicated than many other creatures on the planet, so we we need more DNA than others do for that. There is a rough relationship between an organism's complexity and the size of its genome, but it's a sobering thought for all of us that salamanders, little uh, lizard-like things, have about 30 times as much DNA as we do. (laughs) So uh, the human genome is interesting because uh, because we're all the same species. uh, The DNA that we carry is largely similar. But it's not exactly similar if you compared... uh, one of your chromosomes with the chromosome of the person sitting next to you, they would agree at about uh, 999 positions out of 1,000. So in about one in 1,000 positions, there would be a difference. So across 3 billion positions, that's quite a lot of differences. And it's a sobering thought. If you just did the thought experiment for a moment, and I hope the person next to you doesn't take this the wrong way, but if the person next to you were in fact a chimpanzee, uh, your DNA and their DNA would agree at 99 positions out of 100. So even though they're uh, separated from us, by five or six or seven million years of evolution, our DNA is in fact remarkably similar to that of our closest uh, relatives. And much of our focus is to try and understand the health consequences or the biological consequences of the differences that we carry in our DNA. Because one part of that is that there are some genetic variants carried by people that make them more likely to get, say, heart disease and others more likely, someone else more likely to get diabetes or arthritis or maybe schizophrenia. So for virtually all of the common human diseases, genetics is part of the story. Some of the susceptibility to disease is a result of the DNA we inherit from our parents. But for the common diseases, it's not all about uh, genetics, as as we all know. And you've seen a number of nice examples in Martin's talk. Uh, It's also the environment. Lifestyle factors, uh, environmental factors, and so on, also affect disease risk. There's been a huge amount of work uh, and quite a lot of success over about the last six or seven years in our understanding of of the genetic part of that story, of the genetic variants which are responsible for differences between people in how likely they are to get diseases. So I'm gonna show you a collection of pictures like this one. Uh, Each one of these is a kind of cartoon representation of one of the 23 human chromosomes. Uh, This is human chromosome one, which is the biggest, two is the second biggest, and so on. And uh, I'll show areas like this. What does this little lollipop mean? Uh, It means that at that time, in fact, in 2005, scientists discovered, in a way which has been replicated many times now, they discovered a particular place in the DNA where having one of the letters, maybe a T in our code, rather than an A, affected the risk of a common disease. So I'll start my little uh, series of pictures from 2005. At that time, so in all of the scientific discovery before then, there were maybe a handful of examples that we reliably knew where changes in people's DNA affected their likelihood of getting common diseases. There's a completely separate story which I won't go into uh, about diseases which are much rarer where genetics is all of the story. Huntington's disease, cystic fibrosis and others you'll have heard about. But this is a focus on common diseases where genetics is is part but an important part of the story. So in 2005 there was the first discovery of what we think of as as a kind of new wave uh, in genetics. In 2006 there are a couple more examples. There was another one on chromosome 1. A different color means a different disease. This was a form of inflammatory this is a form of inflammatory bowel disease. This is an eye disease called age-related macular degeneration. 2007, uh, things really started to change, and there was what we thought at the time to be an explosion of discoveries. Well, it was kind of touchingly naive that that was an explosion. That was where we' got to by 2009, 2010 and 2011. So in fact, there are now whereas in 2005, there are a handful of examples there are now close to 2,000 uh, genetic variants which have been reliably associated with a whole range of different diseases and conditions. And actually Oxford scientists have played a major role in these developments. There are many, many conditions involved, you're not supposed to read this, just notice that there are lots of them, but for example, uh, heart diseases here, breast cancer, kind of ordinary traits like heart and weight, uh, other diseases, the mental health disorders, schizophrenia, depression, and so on. So across the whole spectrum, there's been this explosion in our understanding That's a slightly more recent picture with the colors organized in a different way. But there's been a massive explosion in our knowledge of genetic variants associated to disease. For most of us, I think we'd argue the benefit for that isn't so much in using genetics to predict risk, because most of these variants actually have a fairly small effect. They might make you 5% or 10% more likely to develop the disease. What they offer is a critical clue into the basis of the disease. If we discover that having a T in your DNA here rather than an A makes you more likely to get, say, heart disease, we can then try and find out what's going on biologically, what's different biologically in the people with the T compared to the A, and we might find that there's a particular gene which is working in a different way or turned on in a different way and turned off in a different way uh, between the two different variants. And for most of the diseases that we've studied, The early pointers are to bits of biology we hadn't even understood as being part of the pathways and the biology relevant for those diseases. It'll take time to go from this kind of knowledge to really understanding the biology and then developing new drugs, but it's a really exciting area. As I said, in 2007 we were quite excited. We thought uh, we'd cracked it and made some progress, and actually a science magazine every year in a rather... uh, kind of pompous way, pick amongst all of science what they see to be the most important breakthrough, and in 2007 it was indeed this massive change in our understanding of genetics and its role in diseases. Martin's just talked about uh, UK Biobank, the large prospective uh, study of individuals on whom lots and lots and lots of things are being measured, and in which there's connection with medical records and so on, and an exciting part of that uh, is a project which we're leading from Oxford for each of those individuals to measure just under a million pieces of genetic information. So soon we'll be able to tie in that information with the kinds of measurements Martin was talking about and the kind of images you'll hear about in the next presentation. The reason this has all come about is it has got cheaper and cheaper to to read DNA. So this is a uh, a curve actually taken from um, The Economist a couple of years ago. Remember I said that to read the first copy of a human genome by the Human Genome Project, it cost about $3 billion dollars. Over uh, the last four years, the prices have come down by a factor of about 10000 So it's now at the stage where we can measure large amounts of genetic information rather more cheaply. You'll all know the biblical adage that you should know yourself or know thyself. Well, if you think of that in terms of uh, molecular biology, you can do it rather more cheaply now than you would once have done. And to give you a sense, whereas the Human Genome Project, the first version, took about 10 years, uh, it's now possible on uh, one of the modern DNA sequencing machines to read a human genome in about 24 hours. And to give you an example, our center in Oxford has five of these uh, running. And the costs currently, it's about two and a half thousand pounds to read a human genome. And within a couple of years, we think that'll be around 1,000 pounds. Give you a sense of data, so one run of these machines over 24 hours to generate the data for a human genome, that takes up about 700 uh, gigabytes. So as a comparator, if you have a laptop, that'll have a a disk, or these days a kind of uh, solid-state memory device, which would maybe have 125 or 250 gigs. So one run of these would fill up the disks on several laptops. And in fact, the data volumes are so large that when we're involved in collaborations, we do some sequencing and and, uh, centers we collaborate with in America do sequencing. The data is too big to transfer backwards and forwards across the Internet, Uh, somewhat embarrassingly in the modern age, the quickest way to get this information from one place to the other is to write it onto a hard disk and send it by Federal Express. That's a sense of the scale uh, of the data involved. So I want to finish by giving you uh, three little vignettes and stories about uh, where genomics is impacting via big data on our understanding of health and, and ways in which it might impact on healthcare in the near future. First of those is to do with cancer, So cancer is fundamentally a disease of the genome. Roughly speaking, every cell in our body has the same DNA in it. It has the DNA that we inherited from our parents. An exception to that are the cells in cancer tumors. And what goes wrong, as many of you will be aware, what goes wrong in in a cancer tumor is that the DNA, the genome, in those cells gets messed up. So they have a different instruction manual uh, in a way that's flawed. Well, flawed for us. It's good for them. Uh, flawed for those cells, either in making them reproduce more than they should, or perhaps not die. So that leads to the proliferation of tumors. So think of tumors as about cells whose genomes are messed up, and we're now at the stage where we can actually read the genomes in those tumor cells, and we can compare that to the genomes in the individuals involved. And that offers huge potential, first of all, at a basic level to understand uh, cancer, and secondly, to target treatments uh, at the particular errors in a single individual's tumor. So what I'd like to do is to give you a sense of how different the genome in a tumor might be from the genome in every other cell in that person's body, the the non-cancerous cells. It's hard to... So genomes have got three billion bits of information. I can't really show all of it. So I'll use pictures like uh, this. So we can think about the changes in different ways. What's represented in the middle of the picture are very large changes. So where I said we have 23 chromosomes, where a a fairly large piece of a chromosome is not where it should be. You know, half of chromosome 2 isn't stuck to the other half of chromosome 2, it's stuck onto chromosome 7. So this is uh, the genome of one particular tumor, and already we can see a large number, uh, 37 of these, very large rearrangements. Rearrangements are very large, many, many tens or hundreds of millions of letters of the genetic code in the wrong place. Then there are a series of of smaller changes, bits of DNA that might be a million or two million letters long, uh, which are either missing... Or which are copy, instead of having one copy of that, we might have the, the tumor cells might have two or three copies. There are 66 of those in this particular tumor, and then uh, there are another 30,000 positions in the genomes of the cells in this tumor where there's a single letter that's different from what it was uh, in the cells of, of the individual from in which the tumor arose. So I want to give you a sense of really really messed up genomes. But what's different now over the last couple of years, we can actually read the genomes of the tumors. So the last uh, example was was, uh, the genome of a, a skin cancer, a melanoma tumor. I'm going to show you six pictures like that, each taken from a different woman who has breast cancer. So there's one, there's another, 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 and another. And what I want you to notice is how different they are. So it's a kind of massive change in the way we think about cancer now. Previously, we classified cancers according to where in the body they were. Breast cancer, colon cancer, skin cancer, lung cancer, and so on. Now we can read the genomes of the tumors. We're much better off classifying them by the kinds of errors those genomes have. And ideally, using that information. So uh, breast cancer is already an area in which some aspects of the genetic differences between the uh, tumors are used, both in prognosis and in choices of therapies, but as I said, we're just on the verge of being able, at a clinical scale, to do this routinely in individuals. What we'd like to be able to do, and there are one or two examples where we can, what we'd like to be able to do is to sequence the tumour, work out what the major errors are, and then then be able to pick amongst the drugs we have on our shelf, as it were, the drug which is particularly good at combating that problem, very much personalising the treatment of cancer. I'll give you one encouraging example of that. So uh, melanoma is a very bad cancer to get. There are effectively no known treatments for advanced melanoma. Um, I'll show you an example here of a a novel treatment that's taken advantage of the genetic information. So it turns out that many melanomas, about two-thirds of them, carry a particular genetic change. Uh, We'd write it in this way. So BRAF is one of the genes, Uh, that we carry. It's a gene which produces an enzyme as it happens, but think of a gene as producing some stuff, and uh, many melanoma tumors, about two-thirds of them, have a particular change at position 300 in the sequence of amino acids that builds up the protein, um, which you can think of as causing this gene to be switched on. It's producing stuff all the time when it it should only be doing it uh, occasionally. And so that led people to the idea, so this is a discovery which is about 10 years old in terms of science. So it led people to the idea of developing a drug which specifically tries to combat the fact that this gene is turned on all the time by kind of mopping up the stuff it's producing. So that would be called uh, an inhibitor of the product of the gene. So this is from an early clinical trial of this, the, the image on the left, and I know almost nothing about images, but we've got someone here who does if you've got any complicated questions. The image on the left shows, so anything here which is red or green or yellowy is bad news. That's their cancer cells spread largely throughout the body, apart from the brain and the bladder. Here's the, the scan in the same individual two weeks later after this specially targeted uh, therapy based on what we knew from the genetics. It's an extraordinary change, and it's very encouraging. Melanoma is a disease, uh, as I said, where there are almost no known treatments. Uh, this was after two weeks. You have to, of course, follow the individuals over time, and that's been done. And cancers, cancers are typically rather clever, so they find ways of trying to get around the drug treatment. So this isn't a story in the sense of now uh, something close to a cure, but it's a really important advance. My second story has to do with genomics, not of people, but but of the things which infect us and make us sick. And you may have heard of something called uh, Clostridium difficile, C. difficile. It's one of those bugs that people get in hospital uh, that causes them to be ill. It induces diarrhea and other symptoms. And in some people, particularly the elderly, it can be extremely serious and sometimes fatal. And there's been a lot of attention in the UK about trying to stop the spread of this disease in hospitals. So in a collaboration with uh, colleagues in Oxford, we applied uh, the kinds of things I've been talking about. We we looked at electronic patient records for uh, the three major hospitals, part of the Oxford Hospital Trust, for just over two and a half years, studying altogether almost 700,000 different instances of patients in wards in the hospital. So think of the record... So what's this information like? Here's a kind of representation of it. So going along here is time. Each one of these represents a patient, and the information we have is when they arrived in the hospital, which ward they are in, when they moved to a different ward, and so on. And in some cases, they're in the hospital. They go out of the hospital again. They then come back in, uh, and the colors here represent different wards. And the horizontal lines for some of the patients are the times at which they had a test that was positive for C. difficile. So, we've got this very, very large database with information about where the patients are and who's getting infected. And there was also genetic information, some genetic information on the bugs, the bacteria, the C. difficile that were infecting them. So, what we did, and I won't bore you with the details, was to develop a fairly sophisticated mathematical model of the way the infection might be spreading. We applied that model to the large data set to see what we could learn. And it turned out to be very informative. So here's, uh, again, a very small, these datasets are huge, so it, as, as Martin uh, explained, it's rather hard to visualize them. Here's a small part of that, and what this shows is an instance where our analysis of the data convinced us that it was very likely that this individual infected this one, and here's another instance and another and so on. So we can actually, by tying together the genetic information and the patient records, infer transmission events, That's interesting in its own right. It's also interesting because we can aggregate those and try and look at different sources of transmission and interestingly here uh, our study showed that most of the transmission in hospital doesn't seem to be from other people in hospital who have got C. difficile. So that's a bit of a it's encouraging at one level because that's what uh, we've been worried about Um, but it's, it's tantalizing in another because we're yet to find out. So what else might be going on? It may be that there are individuals carrying the disease in hospital who aren't themselves patients, so they don't uh, register. Or it could be that some of this disease is flying under the radar and it's at low levels and we're not seeing it. It's one example of analyzing a large data set to learn about transmission. Actually these, are, you don't need to uh, know the details, so these are different genetic versions of, of the bacteria and we learned that some genetic versions are much worse, in t- or they're much more virulent in terms of spreading than others. These are different wards in the hospital, and uh, the rate of spread is much higher in some wards than others. And before you rush and think that that may well be because of differences in hygiene or cleaning or whatever between the wards, uh, wards with older people will tend to have more incidence of infections than others. We thought uh, we could control that rather better by looking at hospitals. Here are the three hospitals with rather different overall rates of infection. Uh, Again, it's not so easy to compare directly between hospitals because of differences of case mix. But encouragingly, here's the first... uh, roughly a year and three quarters in the study, and here's the second half of the study period where differences in control measures that have been introduced to the hospital, and we see they made a difference. My last story has to do with uh, whole genome sequencing, reading the entire uh, DNA of individuals, and I'll tell you about a collaboration we've been involved in with a major technology company, Illumina, to study 500 patients with a wide range of conditions to try and see how how close we are to being able to use genetics sequencing whole genomes, to inform clinical medicine. I'll give you just one instance of that, of a family, two parents and a child, where the child had a very, very serious condition uh, that involved both the shape and the structure of her skull and also her uh, intellectual development. In this case, there was no prior evidence of anything like that in the family, So we suspected that what might be going on is that the child had unluckily inherited a change. They hadn't got an exact copy of the DNA from their parents. They'd got something which is slightly different. Now, that happens to all of us. Of the three billion letters, maybe about 30 are miscopied in passing from parents to offspring. Usually that's fine, unless what's miscopied happens to be in a really critical gene. And that's what we suspected here. So here's a picture of the girl uh, when she was young. And you can see that her head uh, isn't shaped the way many people's heads are. And when you look at her skull, it's much less solid than most people's skulls. So really, really serious issues. And through DNA sequencing, we were able to identify uh, the likely cause of the change, feed that information back to the parents. In her case, what it does is to confirm a diagnosis. It doesn't immediately lead to a treatment. On the other hand, from the parent's point of view, it's hugely helpful because they can get advice on the risks to any fut- about for any future children they might be having. They're very worried having had one child with this condition and what are the risks for another. And because of the way in which it has happened, those subsequent risks are very small. Also, it's, uh, I wasn't the clinician involved in this. Uh, it, for the parents involved who have this really sick kid through genetics, they're desperately worried that it may have been something they did or maybe they had a drink during pregnancy or something like that. Uh, to know that it's just a chance effect can be really important. And I'll just, uh, th- there's a large project involved here. So I showed a picture earlier of David Cameron when he was visiting to open um, our new uh, Li Ka-Shing Center a couple of months ago. He went around uh, the lab and met some of the uh, students and postdocs involved in these studies, one of whom talked to him about Otahara syndrome. You may know that uh, David Cameron's first child had a very, very rare f- form of early onset epilepsy and died of that. It's called Otahara syndrome. That's one of the conditions we we're studying in this uh, and the prime minister was able to hear that in each case we'd been able to narrow down uh, exactly what the mutation causing the change was and to confirm the diagnosis and, and he was very touching in the in the speech he made to open the center about the kind of difference that would make to the to the people who are now in the position he and his wife were several years ago with with really sick kids in this kind of situation whether it's so, that was after the announcement I'm about to describe. But but just over a, almost a year ago, the government announced uh, in what is for Britain a huge advance, and will place uh, Britain and the health service, national health service, well ahead of the rest of the world. The sequencing of 100,000 uh, patients within the NHS, reading the G- DNA sequences of 100,000 people, you can think of that. Uh, so these are people who are already sick, uh, many with serious conditions, cancers and others. So for them. Of course, each one will be spoken to individually, and they'll be asked whether they want to have uh, what is, in effect, a different and a new medical test. Uh, but for each of those, there's a possibility of trying to use the genetic information in the way I've described in some of these examples uh, to, to confirm diagnoses and possibly to influence their healthcare. So I hope you've got the sense that it's it's, it's an exciting time. Uh, large amounts of data in genetics, I've, I've given examples of combining them uh, with other sorts of uh, data that's uh, collected in, in the health service, it naturally leads into the, the third of the presentations where you'll hear something about, about medical imaging and the possibilities there. Thanks very much.
3: Hello. Ah. We tried this earlier and it worked. Don't know what's happening now. So uh, my name is Saad. I'm going uh, to be talking about um, uh, brain imaging, as you've heard, uh, and big data. So I'm going to be showing, uh, hopefully, lots of pretty brains. maybe, maybe not. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Okay, so uh, I have two take-home messages in this talk. Um, First of all, imaging data is big. When I I say big, I mean even bigger than the human genome. Uh, Sorry, Peter. Uh, In the human genome project, uh, the data is gigabytes. In an equivalent project that's going on in neuroimaging these days called the human connectome project, uh, which I'll be talking uh, talking about today, uh, data is terabytes, so definitely... You can't store them uh, on a regular laptop computer. And the second thing (laughs) to know about imaging data. So imaging data is not information. When uh, you stick a subject in the scanner and try to scan his brain, uh, his or her brain, uh, this is what you get uh, as raw data. Uh, So where's the brain? (laughs) There's no brain. Uh, Of course, if you know a little bit about MRI, this is an MRI image you know that uh, all you need to do is do a Fourier transform to get the brain, but uh, even then, when you have a brain, you you need to extract information from it. So raw data does not equal information. And this is why uh, the title of my talk is Automated Analysis of Imaging Data. You need automated tools because the data is big, and you need uh, uh, analysis tools, clever analysis tools, because data is not information. The most popular imaging technique these days is MRI because it's very versatile. There isn't one type of MRI images. There are several types of MRI images. Uh, This is the simplest one to uh, conceptually understand. Structural images, they give us information on uh, the size, shape of the brain, the kind of cortical thickness, or the uh, the thickness of the cortex, the kind of layer of grey matter that uh, contains neurons. Uh, Also, the size of white matter, the uh, the part of the brain that contains the connections between these neurons. Uh, We can also... Um, we we also have automated tools that extract this information from the data. For instance, this tool here that uh, allows you to uh, estimate uh, atrophy in the brain. In this case, uh, uh, due to a disease process, I believe it's uh, multiple sclerosis in this case. But even in structural MRI, there are tons of different types of structural MRIs uh, because MRI is so so, so versatile just by changing the kind of acquisition parameters, you can get different types of contrasts. These types of contrast, called T2 flare, T2 star, uh, they specialize in finding lesions in the brain. Another type of structural MRI is looking at something slightly different. It's called diffusion MRI. And this technique uh, allows us to find the connections in the brain, the physical connections. It works at uh, at a micron scale, because axons in the brain are micron thick. And it also allows us to have an idea of how healthy these connections are. Finally, we have um, uh, techniques for doing functional MRIs. This time, the data is not 3D data, but 3D plus time, so uh, even more data. In this case, uh, what we call task fMRI, uh, it's a set of uh, uh, MRI tools that allow us to uh, localize uh, brain function. So we stick a subject in the scanner, and we ask this subject to f- perform a task, and then we model the, the activity in each part of the brain using mathematical modeling, to extract uh, uh, regions that are involved in, uh, uh, in, uh, in different tasks. We can also stick a subject in the scanner and uh, ask them to do nothing. Uh, this is called resting state fMRI. This is what the data would look like. So even when you ask a subject to do nothing, they, they still move. So we need tools to correct for these types of uh, uh, movement artifacts and also pulsation uh, type artifacts. And once you've done that, uh, we can... Um, use uh, analytic tools to extract brain networks that are uh, talking to each other even though the subject or the participant in the scanner was not asked to do anything in particular. Of course, the brain is constantly doing things and um, uh, we can use what we call multivariate modeling techniques. Basically, we, we have no idea what the brain is doing, but we can uh, figure out which regions of the brain are talking to each uh, which other regions of the brain, and extract these networks. And then we can do... Uh, fancy hierarchical, hierarchical modeling of these brain networks, basically grouping them together and uh, uh, into lumps of networks that talk to each other. <coughs> so there's, there's many, many applications of these uh, MRI techniques. I just picked one here uh, because of the uh, kind of clinical focus of this session. Uh, this is uh, an application in uh, pre-clinical trials. Uh, in this case, pain relief drugs. So. Um, This this is a collaboration between uh, FEMRIB, uh, which is uh, the lab where I work in Oxford, and Pfizer, led by Eugene Duff, one of our postdocs. And what uh, Eugene wanted to do is uh, uh, find out whether we can incorporate uh, imaging data, in this case, task fmri in uh, preclinical studies. So to figure out whether uh, a compound is likely to work and then launch it into a a bigger scale, large uh, uh, clinical trial. So Eugene argues that if you include imaging data, you can increase the power of these kind of go-no-go type decisions uh, because um, normally uh, these kind of preclinical studies are are made on a smaller number of subjects and therefore are um, underpowered in general. (laughs) So you've heard about the UK uh, Biobank. Uh, This is the kind of imaging portion of UK Biobank I'm going to switch to. Uh, Biobank is a large... Uh, epidemiologic-type study of half a million people. 100,000 of these uh, people agreed to to be scanned in MRI, and uh, uh, 100,000 is a large, large number in imaging. It's it's by far the largest imaging study uh, in the world. So it's very, very exciting to be involved in this study. And um, these subjects will undergo different types of MRI: structural uh, diffusion and functional MRI, uh, and I have a, a list of uh, other kind of imaging uh, protocols that will be uh, done on these people. But the kind of long-term overall pro- uh, the long-term goal of this project is to uh, combine imaging phen- phenotypes with uh, the genetics and with uh, uh, all sorts of information uh, on these subjects, on their uh, lifestyle and environment, <coughs> and combine these with the long-term health outcomes Uh, in order to learn a model for these outcomes. And this model will be then applied to new subjects, uh, combining imaging genetics and uh, other types of information to predict their their own outcome. (laughs) As I said, uh, several types of um, uh, images will be acquired on these subjects. Eight in total, uh, uh, four types of structural, six types of structural images, uh, plus diffusion and functional resting state uh, images, they will also be scanned for uh, on a cardiac protocol and the um, and whole body fat MRI. So this project will generate 200 terabytes of data. So it's uh, a lot of data, uh, but as I said in the beginning, we need to be able to extract information from these data. So this is a major kind of data analysis challenge. One, one way uh, that we... Uh, thought of in extracting information uh, from the data is this multimodal um, independent component analysis. So basically this method uh, allows you to combine all sorts of different data sets and extract features that are relevant from these data sets. For instance here, uh, these features are are brain maps, so where in the brain things are happening. These two features I'm showing on the left are uh, 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 cortical thickness that is uh, uh, thinning uh, throughout uh, life span. So on the left you have all brain areas where uh, the cortex is thinning throughout uh, life from age zero to age 80. And the second map is actually uh, brain regions that are only thinning uh, uh, between ages 60 and 80. So the method was uh, able to uh, automatically extract this information from the data without any uh, information put in it. Uh, On the right here you can see that uh, the method is also capable of extracting problems in the data, artefacts. Uh, this uh, this weird-looking artefact in the middle of the brain is actually related to the scanner software version. There are three different versions of the scanner software and they uh, cre- created this kind of artefact in the data. So not only uh, we can detect it automatically in the data, but we can also use this model to, to have a, a first-order correction for these artefacts from the data. So in terms of big data needs, as I said, uh, biobank imaging will produce 200 terabytes of raw data, but more than 200 terabytes uh, of extra pre-processed data. So we need neuroimaging tools that are capable uh, of uh, extracting automatically in useful information from these data. Uh, the tools are already are ready and reasonably mature these days, but these tools have been developed in the context of uh, where brain imaging was... Uh, brain imaging researchers uh, were scanning 20, 30, 40 people, uh, but um, they need to be kind of put to, to the scale of 100,000 people. Uh, it's notable that the uh, cardiac uh, research, MRI research, do not yet uh, have the, uh, the these kinds of automated ad, uh, advanced analysis tools <coughs> uh, that we have in, in kind of brain research. Uh, so this, this data will be... Uh, 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 Freely accessible by other researchers, and some of these researchers will um, will want to do their own analysis with the with the raw data, so they want to to access these 200 terabytes of raw data. So there will be um, uh, there will be uh, facilities to uh, to do computing, uh, cloud computing on this uh, uh, on this on this database. And as I said, the long term uh, plan is to uh, co-model the image and phenotypes with lifestyle, genetics data, and long term Uh, Healthcare outcomes in order to to make predictions on new subjects. The other big uh, project that is happening these days is called the human connectome project. So this is a different beast from the UK biobank. Uh, It's a, it's an NIH funded uh, project that aims at charting the human connectome. So the connections between brain areas in the, in the human brain in vivo. Uh, it involves three main groups: uh, Washington University, led by David Van Essen; uh, University of Minoso- Minnesota, uh, Camille Ugerbil uh, does the physics; and Family Center in Oxford, led by Steve Smith and Tim Behrens. Uh, uh, 1,200 subjects will be scanned here, so that's uh, much less than the UK Bi- uh, Biobank uh, imaging. It's still a big number for imaging studies, but it's, uh, uh, it's, it's a much smaller scale. However, the uh, the, uh, this project is, is really trying to push data quality to, to its extreme. It's trying to push MRI to the extreme while still being robust enough to be able to, to scan 1,200 subjects. And as a result of this, um, the, the actual amount of data generated by this uh, project will exceed the amount of data generated by the UK Biobank Imaging. And one uh, major goal of this project is to make this data as well as the analysis techniques freely available for for people to use online. As an example of the um, quality of the data that we get from the uh, Human Connectome project, uh, this is um, resting state fMRI, but because we have, uh, because a lot of research has been put into improving the MRI scanning, we can acquire much, much more data per unit time. And also these subjects are going to be scanned uh, for much longer than the UK Biobank uh, imaging subjects. So the uh, Biobank imaging subjects uh, uh, will be scanned for 35 minutes. These guys are scanned for three hours. And as a <laughs> uh, not three consecutive hours, but uh, 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 three, three separate bunch, <laughs> which is still, uh, still quite a long time. But as a result, we can see dynamics of these brain networks rather than these static images uh, that we will get from the Biobank images. So, uh, so, the nice thing about this project is the, the data quality is unprecedented, but it's also a large amount of data. So, even though we have only 1,200 subjects, uh, the high quality of the data makes it, rather than terabytes, petabytes of data. So, thousands of terabytes. So, we need to, to kind of switch... Uh, Gears, switch mode, in, uh, both in terms of the hardware that we're using, but also in terms of the software that we're developing. And we started doing that, for instance, uh, with diffusion data. We used to have uh, tools that run on uh, single com- CPU computers, so um, uh, just standard computers. Uh, on, on this HCP, human connectome project data, would take a million seconds. We started uh, uh, porting these uh, analysis tools into graphical. Uh, units, so graphic cards uh, that uh, sit on most computers but are generally just used to play video games. Uh, We use them now to to kind of analyze data with a massive improvement in in performance. Uh, We can analyze a subject in 100 seconds now on a cluster of these uh, GPUs instead of a million seconds. And just to give you an idea of how much uh, computing resources we need to analyze this type of data, one... uh, full connectome uh, from the fMRI data. In order to calculate one full connectome, we needed to use our uh, 1.25 terabytes of RAM server that we have in, uh, uh, in the lab. <coughs> so the, the final project I was uh, going to talk about is this uh, uh, developing a human connectome project. So it's kind of, uh, uh, we call it the baby connectome. So it's kind of inspired from the HCP but uh, looking at, at uh, uh, looking at babies uh, when they are uh, uh, fe- fetuses, so the uh, the kind of challenges are, are, are different. The challenge here is more on the uh, data acquisition uh, and MRI uh, rather than the uh, the kind of data analysis. So this is a structural image of a baby uh, moving in a womb. Uh, but the project will also be acquiring diffusion data and functional MRI data, so focusing on the brain of these fetuses. And I think that's my last slide, but I'll keep this video here so you can look at it. Uh, (laughs) Thank you.